Pontus, and then I'll read this portion of Scripture. Let's pray. Our Father, do come and bless us with understanding. Teach us as your children, Lord, how to pray. Teach us, Lord, to walk in the confession of sin. Teach us the blessedness of forgiveness. Teach us the benefits of walking in this new obedience. Lord, teach us to be gracious to others. Teach us, O Lord, and give us all the motivations we need to walk as children of light, as those who have been bought by the blood of Christ. Teach us, Heavenly Father, to follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus, that we would be your true sons and daughters in Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, let me read this portion of Scripture, verse 9. Uh, down through verse 13. Hear now the word of God. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning, uh, this sermon is going to address two important assurances for the disciple of Jesus Christ. Two very important assurances for the disciples of Jesus Christ. We've already learned in connection with this petition, or at least in in addressing this petition, I have hopefully been able to demonstrate that this petition of pardon is connected intimately with the previous petition, give us our daily bread. That is, it's important to recognize that if we are going to be the recipients of those heavenly blessings from our Heavenly Father in all of its fullness, then we are going to need to walk in the new obedience of life. We're going to need to walk in holiness. That those two are connected. The second thing I hope I pointed out to you is that as Christians, as disciples of Christ, we ought to be sensitive about our activities. We ought to be very conscious about our sins and obedience before God. And that's what this petition does address that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we are very sensitive to how we live before the face of our God. This morning, as we address the the two assurances that I'm going to set before us, I hope that you can see now why this prayer is also designated the disciples' prayer. That it's not just called among theologians the Lord's Prayer. And that is, it's the Lord's Prayer in this way. He's teaching us how to pray. But it's the disciples' prayer. That is, this is a prayer that the disciples of Jesus Christ, those who follow after Him, those who desire to walk in the new pattern of life given to them by Christ, uh, uh, made able to live in the newness of obedience by Christ. This is the prayer for His disciples. We are to walk in the newness of life. We are to walk in this repentance given to us by grace in the Lord Jesus Christ. These are two doctrines that this morning we're going to look at. What are the two assurances of saving grace? Well, the first one is this. That as a disciple of Jesus Christ, we walk in the newness of obedience through 
our confession of sin. That is our original confession of sin. Where we believe in Jesus Christ. Where we confess our sins. That being a fruit and a saving grace of the Holy Spirit in us. That we would not rest alone in that confession. But that that confession would lead by God's grace to what? New obedience and sanctification of life. That when we have moral failures, we walk in the confession of that newness of life. I hope you can see that. And I'm going to discuss why in a moment. That's important. It's an assurance. This petition addresses the assurance that we are true disciples of Jesus Christ. You see, in in fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus is setting before us what it really means to be a real disciple of Jesus Christ. Why did he need to do that? Well, he needed to do that because of the perversion of the teaching of the Pharisees. He he needed to do that because the Pharisees were masters at twisting and perverting the scriptures, making the teaching of God uh, null and void, but but highlighting their own traditions and their own rituals and their own self-justification. See, the the Pharisees and the Jews had become masters of self-justification. And they reinterpreted the Scriptures to justify their lusts and their, their perverted positions. They would twist the Scriptures in order to make themselves look Obedient and righteous and pious. And Jesus addressed and dealt with that in the very beginning before he even got into the, the form of prayer in the Lord's Prayer when he said, don't be like the hypocrites. The Pharisees, when they walk out into the streets and when they get into the intersections where there's a multitude of people that can see them, you know, don't be like them. Don't draw attention to yourself and, and pray out in the streets. So the Jews were very, very concerned about the appearance of piety, the appearance of holiness, but they were not concerned inwardly about it. Now, I ask you, brothers and sisters, you're conscious about your environment and the culture that you live in. Is that a problem today? Is that a problem among churches today? Minimizing sin. Minimizing those things that God calls sin, right? Minimizing those things that God says are important. Minimizing those gracious, those graces and the means of grace that God's given to His people to strengthen them, to encourage them, to lead them, and to bring them to that great eternal salvation that belongs to all who truly believe and rest in Him, what happens is when the church begins to foster and promote their own teaching about morality, about this life, about eternity, they make the Word of God null and void. Now, we minimize what God hates in our political arena. We minimize what God hates in our religious arenas, in in the church settings, in preaching of the gospel. The way churches either discipline or, or, or not. The things that people are held accountable for in church. I'm told all the time that no one wants accountability to these things. And remember what Jesus taught his disciples. He said, listen, there are those things that are highly esteemed among men. But guess what? They are an abomination to God. How do we know we are true disciples of Jesus Christ? How do we know? 
I mean, this is important. How do we know we are not walking in the error of theology, the error of doctrine? How do we know we, what we believe is right? How do we know that our actions, the things we do, the things we don't do, how are they justified? I mean, that's important, right? If we're to live before the face of God, if we're to live in His presence, if we're to live in fellowship, that union we have with our Heavenly Father through the union we have with Christ Jesus, how do we know we are not deceived? And you can see the very you can see the importance of what we're talking about in this petition. Our Lord Jesus is promoting in this petition to Two assurances. And that first assurance is that we walk in the confession of sin. That we walk with a consciousness of our moral failures. We walk, we don't, we don't silence and harden our consciences. We don't put our consciences away with, uh, excuse me, our consciences are, 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 bringing to us the teaching of God's Word, saying, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. Oh, God's gracious. God's all love. And have we not distorted the teaching of God's love in our own American religious culture by just using that as a blanket statement to to justify all our sinning? Oh, He loves us. He'll just look over it. He's gracious. But see, that's not new. That was the same thing that Israel did. And that Psalm, Psalm 50, uh, I believe Psalm 50 addresses that. God was gracious with Israel. And they thought that God didn't care. They thought, oh, He loves us so much, He's not going to punish our sins. And God in that psalm corrects the people. He says, see, you made a mistake. You thought I was like you. But I'm not. I'm holy. I'm long-suffering, and you took advantage of that. You did not take my patience as a grace to correct your own sins. You took, because you're wicked, because your hearts are corrupt, you took it as a license to sin more. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not a sign of a disciple of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's not a sign of a believer. That's a sign of an unregenerate person. Paul addresses that unregenerate nature in Romans 2. Paul, uh, in speaking about the Pharisees and their despising of the Word of God and despising the goodness of God, he, he, he points out that, uh, that they are guilty of despising the things of God because they do not repent of their sins. They take advantage of the goodness of God. Now listen to these words. I'm just going to read them here for you in verse 17 he says but he says um verse 17 and following says but if you bear the name jew and rely upon the law and boast in god and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourselves are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourselves? You who preach, do you not, um, are, are, do you not steal? Do you, uh, preach to those who do not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? 
You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. I want to stop there. See, they despised the word of God and justified themselves by changing the, by interpreting the word of God to justify their new deeds and actions. Now, we see this today, don't we? How do we see this today? Well, we see this today when things that God commands are minimized. When, 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 when God desires to be worshipped in a certain way, we see that there's teaching that is man-centered instead of God-centered. We see that there is teaching that minimizes God's Ten Commandments. Why are the Ten Commandments important? Well, they're summations of God's law, God's moral law. They're summations of it. When they are minimized, then the teaching of man is increased. When we minimize God's law, man's law increases. So we find that's one assurance. We're going to open that up in just a second. Another way that we know we're Christ's disciples is not only as we walk in this newness of obedience by the confession, the un ongoing confession of sin but brothers and sisters we know we are the true disciples of christ by how we treat others are we gracious now this is not talking about in the broad spectrum of everything but he's talking about when when we are offended and i'm not going to get into offenses that's for another lesson i want to address the attitude of forgiveness. When we are asked for forgiveness, are we gracious? Or do we remain bitter? Do we remain mean? Do we remain vengeful? Do we remain just um, ungodly? See, those are two assurances. Now, there are some that understand this portion of the Lord's Prayer to teach that if we forgive others, God forgives us. I want to help you understand this. that's a conditional statement. God doesn't treat us that way. God is kind and gracious. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has wiped them away in Christ. But... As we walk with our brothers and sisters, how we treat them is a sign of whether or not we have had this grace applied to us. That is, if you have been forgiven much, you are willing to forgive much. Amen? But you see, it's an attitude of the heart here. If you believe that in some way or in any way God saved you because you are worthy of salvation then you're going to tend to be mean-spirited vindictive withholding grace now I'm not talking about this love and grace that is promoted in so many Christian circles, I'm speaking of the fact that when someone comes to you and they ask you to forgive them for offending you, that you grant that forgiveness to them. It doesn't teach conditional forgiveness. And it doesn't teach that this is a petition that addresses our salvation. That is, that is, they'll say, well, God saves us when we come to Him in prayer. And when we, if we're going to confess our sins and believe in Jesus Christ, we have better have forgiven others and then God will forgive and save us. That's not what it's teaching. Those are two misinterpretations and understandings of this 
petition. This petition is addressing the role of sanctification and assurance in the life of every true disciple of Jesus Christ. How do you know you're walking with God? How do you know you have truly confessed your sins and believed in Jesus Christ? Here's two examples of it. Are you walking in confession of sin? And are you walking graciously with those who sin against you and confess it? Brothers and sisters, let me clarify this doctrine of repentance. It is not through our repentance that we are saved, even originally. Though it is a saving grace and though it is necessary, we're not saved by it. And that's a misconception that many have in the sinner's prayer. That just because they have confessed their sins in what is called or at least commonly understood as a sinner's prayer, believing in Jesus, that that prayer or that confession of faith is the thing that saves them. It is not. It is not. It is not what saves us. It is Christ who saves us. It is the application of Christ to us that saves us and atones for us. Nevertheless, we cannot be saved unless we repent. How does that work together? Well, brothers and sisters, let me explain it like this. When we come to the place that we confess our sins, that we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, know this. That is a grace. That is a fruit of the regeneration and the new life that we've been given in the Holy Spirit. And you can see that confession of sin as a first act of obedience and fruit of that new life in Christ. So that repentance is nothing more than the result are the fruit of our union with Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. So why is is repentance necessary? Because if you haven't repented of your sins, you have not been united to Jesus Christ. If you have not a desire and the remorse and the, 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 the brokenness of sin to confess it to God and to plead for forgiveness, you have never been united to Jesus Christ. That's why our Reformed Father says, without it there is no salvation. Because it is the first Fruit of obedience for all who come and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He breaks our heart and He causes us to see our sins as offenses to a holy God. And our hearts are broken and we cry out to our new Father and we say, God forgive us because we've sinned against you. We've blasphemed your name. We've broken your commandments. We've loved evil and hated good forgive us that's the fruit of god working in us acts chapter 11 and verse 18 is a verse that promotes that that teaches us that repentance is a grace granted to us by god granted to us by God. Now let's do this real quickly. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Now here's what I want to do because I want to show you that there are typically two problems when the gospel's preached. Two problems. When we preach the gospel, there are often Two responses to the gospel. There are some that receive the gospel as being that gospel of free grace and misunderstand it to teach that, well, sin abounded, grace more abounded, it glorified God, so why do we worry about sin? And that's called licentiousness. That's called antinomianism. 
That's the idea. That is, well, if sin was covered by grace, we did nothing to, to warrant the grace. We were just sinners and God freely forgave us. Then why should I, as a Christian, concern myself with sin? Let us just go on sinning that grace may abound. Let God be glorified. So that's a problem. Now Paul is dealing with that problem in Romans 6. And I want you to follow the argument. Because we have that same issue today in our churches. That we can believe in Jesus Christ. We can make a profession of faith. And there's no concern afterward of how we live. How we treat others. What code we live by. What commandments we keep. No concern for that. And Paul destroys that kind of thinking and teaches us to reject it as anti-Christian thinking. It's, it's, it is heresy. It is heretical. It is devastating and dangerous for the Christian to indulge in this kind of thinking. Now let's look at the argument. Look at Romans 6 verse 1. It says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Look at Paul's question. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now let's look at another verse. Notice, notice verse 15. What then? Notice this question. This is the question that dominates the passage. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. See, Paul has just taught them, look, to be a Christian is to die to the law. There is no condemnation, therefore, of those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, but if you think that having died to the law, that you are now free to sin you don't understand grace. Now that's the argument. This is what Paul is setting forth. Now let's go back up to verse 3. Now notice, these are arguments, these are doctrines, these are teachings that Paul is presenting to the Christian to help them understand that just because I've died to the law doesn't mean I'm to live as an antinomian or live as a licentious person or live as a person that's not concerned about my moral duties. Notice what he says. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now this baptism is not water baptism. This baptism is a union with Christ. It's identification with him. What Paul is going to go on to say is this. If, you've been, if you have truly been united to Jesus Christ. Now listen to me. If he is truly yours. And you are truly His. You're going to be concerned about sin. And you're going to be concerned about righteousness. Doing those things that please God. Notice what he says. Verse 4. Therefore, we've been buried with Him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. So we too might walk. Look. In the newness of life. If we have been united to Jesus Christ, what are we, how are we to walk? In the newness of life. That's got to describe your life if you're a disciple. Look at verse 5. For if we've become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. If you are united to Jesus Christ, you are His and He is yours. Oh, brothers and sisters, you are no longer a slave to sin. You no longer have, sin no longer has dominion over you. 
If we have, verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Where's this assurance coming from? That is, if I am interested in the newness of life, in the things of God, I have new interests, I have new joys, I have new likes, I have new dislikes, I now walk before the face of my God. I am to be assured at that level that I have union with Jesus Christ. This petition that Lord Jesus is teaching us, this is Paul explaining it. Here, the Jesus, here our Lord says, forgive us of our debts. We're to go before God. We're to confess our sins. Why? Because this is an assurance that we have been forgiven in Christ. If you are desirous to walk with your Lord and Savior in the newness of life daily, that is an assurance to you that you have truly confessed your sins. That you have truly been broken over your sins. You know, what does that mean? Well, some people come to Christ just because they feel sorry for themselves. Some people come to Christ because they, well, they know it's the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean that they're doing it the right way. Some people come to Christ and confess sin because they're scared of hell. That's not true confession. Everyone look at me. Now, brothers and sisters, what I'm telling you here, our hearts ought to be soaring right now because we have Two signs that God has truly regenerated us right here in this petition. That we walk in the repentance of sin before our God and that we are gracious to others when they sin against us and ask for our forgiveness. Is that true of you? If they are not true of you, you need to confess Christ. And you need to confess Christ in a way that you are broken over your sins. You care about offending God. Let me just read a few more and then we're going to go on. Look at verse 12. Well, look at verse 11. uh, uh, Verse 10. He says, For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so. Now notice. Even so, that means this applies to you and myself, consider yourselves dead to what? Sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So listen, brothers and sisters, for a believer to go on sinning and sinning nonchalantly, sinning in such a way that there's no care, no concern, no big deal, I can repent, not repent, I can do this or that, you're not a Christian. You are proven to yourself, unless you, but see, unless you deceive yourself, you're not a Christian. These are signs. These are signs. Now, there are some who believe that we ought to, that when we come to Christ and we confess our sins, there's no need to confess any more sin. Our sins have been forgiven in Jesus, and to confess sin is to sort of slap God in the face that somehow our sins need to be continued to be atoned for. No, listen to me, and I've already said it, I'm going to say it again. We have originally confessed sin in Christ. We have been justified through Christ, forgiven. But because we have been given new life, we walk in repentance and new obedience. It's a fruit. It's a fruit. It's a consequence. It's a good work that we begin to walk in the good works of new obedience, being ever so conscious of our moral failures. And how often do we morally fail? How often? Daily, right? Turn in your gospel, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. And look at 
chapter 13 and verse 10. Now this is a passage of scripture that you that that is used to understand these things. Look at what Jesus tells Simon. I'm going to give you the picture. Jesus has girded himself with a towel. He's going to wash the disciples' feet. Jesus, uh, Paul, uh, Peter tells Jesus, "You're not going to wash my feet." And Jesus says, "If I don't wash your feet, you can have no part of me." And then what does Peter do? Peter says, oh, wash my head, my feet, my toe. Wash all me all over. And Jesus then makes a correction. He says, no, once you've washed your feet, I mean, once you've been washed, all you need to do at that point, since you are clean, is to wash your feet. Look at verse 13 or verse 10. And Jesus said to him, that is being Peter, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. But it's completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you. Now what he is telling Peter is, look, Peter, you've been regenerated. You've been clean. You just need to wash your feet. What do you think that's a metaphor for? It's a description of walking before the Lord. We wash our feet because when you, in that culture and society, they wear sandals. What gets dirty when you walk on the ground? Your feet. What gets dirty when we walk in this life? We, we, we get dirty by the things we think, by the things we say. You know. So we are clean. We've been regenerated. We've been cleansed by the blood of Christ. But we have need to wash our feet. To wash, if you will, our consciences because we think things we shouldn't think. We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. And we don't do some of the things we should do. And we don't often do either one to the fullest of our ability. Turn in your Bibles to John, 1 John chapter 1. All I'm demonstrating here this morning is the need, uh, to showing you the need we have to be sensitive to our sins as Christians. As Christians. As Christians. Look at verse 5. Now this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and the Word is not in us. Now I just want to just point out a few things. Look at verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. The negative. The negative. Now notice what John is doing here. John is writing this epistle to help us know if we are his true disciples. I write these things unto you that you may know you have eternal life. Okay? Look at verse um, yeah, verse 5, where John sets out the doctrine that God is light. That means God is truth. He is holy. He is pure. If we walk with Him, we must walk with Him in this purity and truth. Now, verse 8, I mean, verse 6, verse 8 and verse 10 sets out the negative. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with Him, what is it? And we walk in darkness, we lie. Notice We lie. If we say we know God and we walk in darkness, we're liars. We're liars. Look at verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we have no need for repentance, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Notice self-deception. The person who believes that they can live in this life and not sin before God are self-deceived. They're liars. You have verse 6, 
You have that person. He's a walking hypocrite or she's a walking hypocrite. They are liars in what way? They say they are Christians, but their lifestyle is that of darkness. It has nothing to do with Jesus. Verse 8 is a verse I have no need for, uh, to, for confession because we don't sin. Sound familiar from one of our political candidates or was a political candidate at one time, right? Look at verse 10. If we say, now all this is hypothetical. John is laying out the argument. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. I mean, we have all of these conditions right here. Well, let's look at verse 7. Now, here's the positive, right? The assurance. This is the promise and assurance of forgiveness. But if we walk in the light, that is the truth. If we walk in fellowship with God as he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is exactly what Jesus was teaching us. Forgive us of our debts. Lord, as we walk with you, as we sin in this life. And we do so daily. Lord, we plead for forgiveness and pardon. And that the blood of Jesus would have an ongoing effect in our lives. I hope you can see that. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our, us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's a promise See, John is not saying, oh, hide your sins, which you can't hide before God. He said, look, when we sin as Christians, what do we do? We confess it. And guess what God does? He forgives. He forgives. Now that right there is a great motivation for us to do what? Confess our sins. To be mindful of our sins, not hide them, not act as if they don't exist, not act as if we're more righteous than we really are, but that we would confess our sins, walk in the truth, and guess what? God will forgive us of our sins, and the blood of Jesus Christ continues to work effectually in our lives. Now, brothers and sisters, when you go back, And you think about the petition that Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are asking God to forgive us of our sins. The Scriptures give us many motivations to want to confess sin. I mean, the first motivation we should have to confess sin is what? The command itself. Pray in this way. Pray, Father, forgive us of our debts. It's a command. We have a very command from Jesus Christ to his disciples to do what? Confess your sins. God knows we sin. God sees everything. God knows our heart. He knows when we love things or like things that we shouldn't love or like. He knows when we do things we shouldn't do. He knows when we ought to do things that we don't want to do. He knows us intimately. And He says, when you sin, confess your sin. And I promise to forgive you of your sin. I promise to forgive you of your sins. And not withhold from you any grace whatsoever. There's another motivation. Let me give you a few of them. Number one, we're commanded to confess sin. Number two, brothers and sisters, we are warned that we can grieve God. We We can anger God by our sin. Now, listen, that's a teaching I'm not going to be able to go in depth into it now. But you know, that's a teaching that modern American Christianity will not entertain. They do not want to entertain the idea that God could somehow be displeased with them. God is love and he would never think ill of me 
There's never a moment that God ever sees me in any other way than to be pleased with me. We, I'm just going to give you some of these passages, right, that Ephesians 4.20, Paul commands us not to grieve the Holy Spirit, which means that we can what? Grieve the Holy Spirit. And when you look, look there with me in the context, because I believe what Paul is saying is that we don't do these things, we are guilty of grieving the Holy Spirit. You're guilty of these things. Look back up at, at uh, chapter 4 and look at verse 17 says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have learned or have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus. Paul says there is a difference in a Christian and a non-believer. That is in reference to your former manner of life. You lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the seats. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Therefore, laying aside all falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor for you are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do not let, do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one, with the one in, who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word which is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you among with, uh, from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. What Paul says is when you're not Doing these things, you are grieving the Holy Spirit and you're angering God. Another warning comes out of Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 27. We might, by our neglect of confession, deprive ourselves of certain graces and comforts. That is, brothers and sisters, how do we expect to grow up in Christ, to grow in our understanding of Holy Scripture, to grow in our the integrity of God's Word? How do we expect to increase in that if we are not concerned about holiness? If we're not concerned about walking in the light and walking in fellowship with Jesus, how are we to grow if we're not going to do those things? So you see, by, by not confessing our sins, we are going to deprive ourselves of these graces and growth. Now listen, you say, what are you saying, Pastor? Here's what I'm saying. If you are stagnant in your Christianity... If you've hit a wall, you've hit this, this doldrum, you've hit this area where there's no joy, I'm here to tell you it begins with confession of sin. The, the restoration from that darkness and those lack of true holy desires are being stifled by your hardness of heart and delight in doing what you're doing that God doesn't approve of. He approves of confession of sin. He promises to forgive it. He approves of us walking in the grace of His Word. He approves of our kindness to one another. He approves of us when we're sinned against and we are asked to forgive that we forgive. This pleases Him. Let me give you an example. Matthew 18. Matthew 18. 
Turn to Matthew 18 and go to verse 21. Now, I think this parable and teaching of Christ is going to help solidify what we've been talking about. Jesus has just finished talking about stumbling blocks, offenses. He's just talked about church discipline. And now he gets a question from Peter in verse 21. And look at what Peter asks him. He says, And then Peter said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Obviously, Peter was being gracious in his own mind but not gracious enough. His graciousness did not compare to the graciousness that Christ expected. Now listen to me. Why do I point that out? Because that's often where we are. We are like Peter. We think that when we do anything good, we're gracious. That if we do anything spiritual, we are the, we are the, we are as my grandma used to say, the cat's meow. I don't exactly understand that. But it is supposed to be good. That is like we are at the pinnacle of things here when we do something good. If we do a good deed, we are the example and model of everybody else. Is that right? That's Peter. Lord, should we just forgive seven times? I mean, Peter was not. This wasn't a question. This is a, this is a statement of piety. J- Jesus destroys his piety, his self-piety. And he says, Peter, I tell you, 70 times seven. Now, Linus, now Jesus is going to teach us something. Look at verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who had owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave and in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Look at verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from where? His heart. Now what Jesus is hitting on there is the fruit of regeneration, the fruit of being a true disciple of God in Christ. If we, brothers and sisters, have been united to Christ and we have union with Him, we have every reason and every motivation to forgive others of their sins against us when we are asked to forgive. Notice the text. He owed his master 10,000 talents an insurmountable amount of money that he could never ever repay in several lifetimes isn't that our sin isn't that a picture of our sins hey you covenant children this is a problem for y'all see because oftentimes you think you're good You think you're better than everybody else. But you don't deserve God's grace. Just like your mom and daddy didn't deserve God's grace. 
You don't deserve to be in a Christian home, yet you are in a Christian home. You don't deserve the baptism that you receive, yet you've been baptized, claimed as God's own. You don't deserve the teaching of God's Word, but you have it. And you have all of that because of God's goodness and graciousness. Now here's my question to you covenant children. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you confessed your moral failures? Do you see your sins the way God sees your sins? Do you think you've been forgiven much? See, that's the same question for us parents and older people, isn't it? See, if we have been forgiven much, how can we withhold what's owed to others when they ask our forgiveness? Brothers and sisters, this, and this is not to teach it today because I'm not going to teach it today. This doesn't mean you're not concerned about your reputation, name, or justice. When someone sins against us, when your wife sins against you, when your husband sins against you, when your children sin against you, when you brothers and sisters sin against one another, do you minimize it or do you confess it? If you confess it or you have it confessed to you, forgive. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Why? Because that's what Christians do. That's what Christians who have tasted the grace of God do. That's what true disciples of Jesus Christ do. They will know you are my disciples if you love one another. I'm going to mention this. I'm not going to deal with it now. That doesn't mean love just completely ignores offenses and sins. And you just act as if they never happened without anybody confessing them. It doesn't mean that. It means when they are confessed, there's grace. There's kindness. There's mercy and forgiveness. Just as we went to our Heavenly Father in Christ and asked Him to forgive us of our sins. And He granted to us what? Forgiveness and pardon. Let me um, let me end this morning's sermon with a few things. Just a, 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 I think a couple of things that will help us. Number one, brothers and sisters, confess your sins. Why? They're commanded. You're commanded to do it, and God promises to forgive you when you do. Why would you withhold? You have the promise. Of forgiveness. Why would you not do it? Well, see, you would only not do it if you're not a Christian because you don't care. Number two, that we would see our growth in Christ, our interest in, in religion, our interest in holy things, our interest in spiritual things, our interest in the church, our interest in all that Christ has set before us, connected to our repentance. If we are not walking in repentance, I promise you this, you're, you have become indifferent to the means of grace. You have become dull to the reading of Scripture. You just don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Why? Because you are not walking in the light. You want to walk in the light? You want to walk in the truth? You want to understand it? You want to perceive it? You want to get something out of it? Start confessing your sins sincerely before God and watch what He restores in you. And the last thing. Are you, do you think that anyone ever watching your life would ever want to believe in Jesus Christ? That is, they see your good works. They see your graciousness. They see your kindness. They see your justice. And they want to glorify the Father who is in heaven because of your good works. Brothers and sisters, why are we lacking in evangelism in America? Are the disciples of Jesus Christ walking in repentance? Are they walking in grace with others? 
You see, we could be guilty like Israel. The world sees the church, and what do they see about the church? They see the world. They see lusts. They see greed. They see selfishness. They see self-centeredness. They see people only concerned about themselves. Don't let that be true of you. Don't let that be true of us. You see, brothers and sisters, when we should have a desire that people see our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Learn to pray in this way. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Let's pray.